Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Welcome everybody, we're doing our live stream for April and uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with questions almost right away. So as we get into these, go ahead and post yours in the chat window and the mods will come by and grab them as usual and get them posted out to me so I can see them. While we're waiting for those to get in there though, let's go with the schedule real quick and we'll also take a couple questions from Facebook that we have ready to go. Uh, this last week obviously we had Matrios, Cashel Boards, and the slightly out of time bonus episode Post-Apocalyptic Civilizations, which was supposed to come out uh, last Sunday but got delayed for Easter. Um, and then this coming week we have our Black Hole Ships episode, and you'll be able to see the schedule uh, intermittently up on the uh, left hand corner of your screen as we go. Um, let's go ahead and get started with the questions. We have one from Lucas that says, Do you consider your channel to be a good guide for aspiring sci-fi authors? What audience do you have in mind when you sit down to write a script? We have, um, you know, our target audience is kind of the sci-fi and science crowd. We never really try to go away from the science angle of these things, but we do always try to premise everything from a sci-fi angle. And uh, the original episode was actually with sci-fi authors in mind, just because at the time I was part of a uh, world-building group on Facebook, and the uh, there was this tendency to repeat everything with like, this is the classic cliche space opera on a planet that's, you know, a desert or an ice planet, that's all it is, one city. And we started looking at megastructures, kind of how the channel got started, with the intent of saying, look, there are other options in science fiction you can use that are more realistic and at the very least give you more writing options. And so to a degree, almost every question, almost every episode does have authors in mind for it to as kind of a base, aspiring authors, existing authors, and of course there are a lot of them involved in the group and, and the production crew for that matter. But fundamentally we are a science channel. Uh, I also have a question from Mijo, uh, he asks, what games do you like to play? And I suppose that one comes up a lot as everyone asks me if I've played this or if I've played that. I am always way behind on video games. I tend to play things that were uh, coming out in the mid-2000s, like uh, I think I was playing Soulstorm Dawn of War last night. So I'm usually behind the curve on upcoming science uh, science fiction games. Uh, Sebastian, thank you. Sebastian asks, without nanotech, given how hard it is to make microchips, how big would a Von Neumann probe need to be for self-replication using random asteroids? Hmm. I, that's really hard to say. I I think that the minimum size isn't really limited by the size of the sh- of the computer. You know, you're not really. It's not really a data storage issue. When we talk about things like that, our real limitation is on things like how much radiation shielding do you need in terms of thickness to get through space. And that doesn't just scale down miniaturizing. If you need a meter of shielding, you need a meter of shielding, and. In fact, when you're dealing with things that are very micro-sized, you know, things that are printed out at the atomic scale, you can't let any radiation get in there. It's going to start changing your data because they're just atom-sized bits at that point. So you actually need more shielding. So generally speaking, any ship isn't going to have any real reason to be less than a few meters across and more if it's going a lot faster, if it's going at ultra-relativistic speeds. And even if the computer inside it was the size of a you know pinhead, it still has to be that big. 
Uh, we have a question from Winton Ashley. What do you think? School. What do you think the future of gaming might be? I think that's always hard to say. Virtual reality is going to be the big one. Um, there is a resolution limit, and uh, you know, for me, the graphics angle, while it's always nice, is never the top angle. It's really more about how the game is being designed. So I think that we will start to see a kind of a maximum of that in the not too distant future for things like screen resolution. That's only a very small part of uh, of game graphics themselves. But at that point, I think you are going to start to kind of plateau out and we'll see a shift only to VR in terms of higher resolution or processing power. Uh, GT Cat... GT Cat Fast Callers, you guys have strange usernames. How would you go from zero subscribers to over 300,000 subscribers to just over three years? I think it was actually about three and a half years before we did that, though it kind of depends on when you say the channel started. I, I was talking about that first episode a couple minutes ago, and there was a four-month gap before I did a second episode, and a few more months gap before I did another, and I think we only did like 12 episodes in the first 20 months. But at that point in time, I guess it's just content and uh, how often people wanted to see the videos. Once I started doing it weekly, we started growing, and we kind of learned what we were doing by then, so... I like to think, you know, if you make a good show, people are going to watch. And if you don't, then, you know, patience, you'll improve with time. So, uh, Gehargan asks, how likely or reasonable do you think it is for civilizations that has outgrown currency to keep uh, from doing some jobs by automation, just giving humans something to do that isn't strictly uh, artisanal? Um, this guy, well, I'd, I'd probably take issue with the outgrow currency thing. That is kind of... Um, assuming that we would not use currency in the future and i was thinking of the example from star trek how they uh, say they don't have money but then proceed to use money all the time um especially on deep space nine but i mean the general notion being a post-scarcity civilization you've got so much automation going on that nobody really needs to have what we think was a nine to five job um, and then, of course, with more advanced AI, you might not even need people for the more creative tasks like writing books or producing movies. Um, and I, you could go the route where you were just giving people make work. A very smart AI might decide to play a game where it, it pretends that it has things it cannot do so that humans don't feel useless. It might say, oh, well, I'm very smart, but I have no creative skills at all. You know, could you guys write books? Um, even though it was quite capable of writing masterpieces for all we know. Um, but uh, that's one of those things where I think every civilization is going to have to deal with that differently because that's kind of an existential dread and purpose thing. And we did look at that in post-scarcity and purpose in more detail. Olympus Books asks, do you think humanity will ever be completely post-biological? Uh, I don't think every human will ever be completely post-biological, at least not for such a time frame that it became a bit of a meaningless concept. I mean, you can't really talk about species continuity, even with like genetic controls for billions of years. Um, but you're always going to have people who would not be comfortable with that. I don't know if they'd be the majority or if they'd be a, a small minority, but they there should always be people who I would think would want to stick to a straight biological template, uh, let alone something completely digital. I think a lot of people would hesitate on that. And all right. Oliver Stringer asks, are you of the opinion that life is ultra real or intelligent life is ultra real or in fact both? I don't have an official opinion on that because we don't have data to back it up. You know, right now we have one planet with all the life, intelligent or otherwise, on it. Um, my gut feeling is that life will turn out to be fairly common, but that we will not see 
intelligent life very often, or at least technological life. We do have to keep in mind it took us a long time to go from basically things like fire or bows and arrows to actually doing any real technology. Most of human existence, we had basically just had fire. So there could be planets out there that have modestly advanced intelligent civilizations that just never really embrace technology. Um, but my gut says that intelligence in general will turn out to be real, but we'll have to see it's been out there. It might turn out that life is incredibly real. Um, actually, we're talking about with quantum computing on, uh, I was did an interview with CBS the other day, and uh, one of the things we'd like to be able to do with that is do abiogenesis calculations. Because the biochemistry, we, we talk about how it's, you know, it must have come from this or that place, uh, you know, deep trenches or uh, tidal pools. And um, we don't actually know, nor do we know what really happened to cause that to, uh, to come into existence. So until we can model that, we really can't say. And quantum computing does offer us some opportunities to look at that in more detail. Cardmaster asks, do you think that VR will have more applications than entertainment in the future? Or what are the most outlandish usages you can come up with? Um, you know, I think the most extreme one you'd probably use would be where you're actually using it as essentially a crash to raise your kids in. Um, if you have a really high-tech society uh, that's really post-scarcity, you might want to make sure your children are being exposed to dangers and not necessarily extreme trauma, but, you know, hardship so they're not spoiled, useless layabouts. Um, but you want to make sure they're safe and you don't really want to be sending them out to some camp somewhere where they intentionally expose them to dangers. So VR might be a very common way to raise people. And in fact, that's one of the things we use for ancestor simulations for whether or not we live in a simulation is that maybe that's what happens. People keep repeating the 20th and 24th century over and over again because everyone is technologically advanced enough to kind of absorb the idea of simulation so they would be completely shocked if they found out they were in one but still far enough back that there's hardships and that it's not going to be something they immediately guess is oh i'm in a simulation but there's a lot of applications anytime that you could create a simulated world and it'd be advantageous for entertainment or otherwise you'd expect someone to do that Adam asks, would it be feasible to cool orbital fission reactors by simply surrounding them in large jackets of water? To a limited degree. Um, the issue is that when, you, when you're heating something up, it takes quite a while for the heat to move from where it's being generated at to an outside area that it could cool at. So you're always going to want some active cooling. And you could build a, a, a um, device with no moving parts that moved water around to cool things. But uh, it still has to move it to some sort of antenna where it can dissipate that heat. And the bigger you want that, the bigger those pipes have to be and the faster the flow rate. Time Traveler from the past asks, would you ever be willing to do a video debunking things you find on YouTube that are incorrect in your field? Probably not. Um, you know, that can get to be such a touchy issue. For some, it's going to be really obvious. I mean, if someone puts out a video on why the Earth is actually flat, uh, excluding us since we did do a video on that, um, you know, I don't think I need to debunk that. Whereas a lot of things can be kind of controversial and just going to cause bad feelings. Um, this channel doesn't exist to tell people what's wrong. It's here to introduce them to scientific concepts and futurist ideas. So other people can do rebuttal videos or corrections. I, I tend to avoid things like that myself. Peter asks, what would be what would be your top quality of life breakthrough you would like to see in the next decade? Life extension. I mean, you know, the idea of slowing aging and, and all the associated 
problematic things we have with health for that. To me, it is kind of the ultimate quality of life um, improval. So anything that helps with that, you know, which would be like cancer treatment, that would be the biggest one short term. It just improves quality of life and is a good technological breakthrough. It has huge effects on civilization to um, to start extending people's lives, which we discussed ad nauseum, I think, in some other episodes. Yannick asks, what is your opinion of the FTL of Warhammer 40K, the warp? What do you think is the most likely FTL cyst type from pop culture? I don't think there's any likely FTL um, systems, period. I mean, and I, I, I stress that point enough. There are things on math that you could do, and there's always a possibility of new, new science coming out, or the possibility of something that we only can do on paper could turn out to work if we found like negative matter. But I really just don't see fashion light travel ever being the cards. It just introduces too many crazy options like time travel. Um, you could do some limited versions of that where you're warping space-time locally to shorten a distance. Um, but by and large, I don't think you're going to have the kind of FTL people look at. Um, as for Warhammer 40K's The Warp, um, I, I always like the notion in fiction where if you're going to go fashion light or go to other parallel realities, it will turn out to be uh, an underworld there. Uh, 40K is, you know, obviously not a hard science fiction, although they do have some place where they tend to get better than some of the uh, actual hard sci-fi. I'm very fond of the uh, the setting, but it's not a realistic portrayal of science, to be sure. Numblejack asks, uh, Isaac, what do you think the future of eyeglasses and sunglasses will be like? Per, it depends on how much we can miniaturize things like LEDs um, or LCD displays. It augmented reality where you could see on your glasses, you know, that your tips, notifications, things like that would be a pretty big deal. Um, and kind of the same for sunglasses. You'd want something that was more reactive that could kind of come in and block light. Um, and we do have things that react to UV, for instance. But if you're worn the, the sunglasses that uh, get dark when you're out in the sun, they don't do anything unless there's UV light. Uh, so you need a very bright room and it's not going to help you. Um, so just improvements of that type in the near future, but then obviously the ability to put a TV screen in there or on a contact lens, a big game changer, and then more in the long term, you might start to do things directly into the optic nerves. Um, Jim Whitehead asks, is there a small chance the comet Oumuamua is a cleverly disguised robot probe? An alien race might not want to announce itself, and its dark skin might have few solar cells and cameras, etc. I don't think there's any chance that it is an alien probe. Um, if you're trying to hide something, uh, they didn't do a very good job. You don't, you don't sun dive with a large object like that if you just want to uh, hide. Um, the only things that ever make sense for it being a probe is if it's a broken probe. And that only in the sense that you can now have things that don't make sense about the design. So you can say, oh, well, it has some artificial-ish characteristics, maybe kind of sort of. But it lacks other ones that we'd expect. So maybe it's got them, but it had them and now they're broken. And I think that's probably a bad approach to uh, to trying to look your way through these things. It's kind of like with Tabby Star when people say, well, maybe it's not a Dyson swarm, but it's a partially uh, destroyed one. It's one that started falling apart. And I say, okay, it's a, it's a broken example. So where are the non-broken examples? Um, you can't rule it out, but I think anytime you start to just begin the, the thought stream by saying this is artificial if it's broken, I think you got a problem. Um, 
Ian Cudmo asks, if constructing space habitats is possible, then regardless of whether FTL is possible or not, that seems to mean that there was never a logical reason for alien invasions. What are your thoughts? You always have a motivation for an alien invasion, um, because they could be invading your space habitats too. Nobody is invading anybody for their planet. There are just a lot of planets and there are other options that are better, again, like space habitats. Uh, it's not whether or not a space habitat is easier than terraforming a planet, um, though it does seem like building one would be easier in many cases. Uh, it's that terraforming a planet in another solar system is way harder than building a space habitat. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts on that. The amount of energy involved, the amount of time involved, uh, and the amount of energy needed just to get a small number of people there who are going to need to spend centuries building up their numbers to terraform that planet. Uh, all the technologies that would let you terraform a planet in another solar system make it so much easier to build a space habitat. Um, so even if you're not doing them for the interplanetary days, the early days, you're going to do them for you interstellar. Um, now, as to invading another planet, uh, you're not doing it because you want to steal their resources. You're doing it because you want to steal something unique to that planet like their art and culture or you don't want them running around, but you don't want to exterminate them. And I, I put the emphasis there on don't want to exterminate them because the only reason why you wouldn't just nuke the planet as opposed to invading it uh, is if you're trying to preserve some part of it. Um, Gargan asks, hopeful humanity aside, do you see racism against digital minds a real issue or something that will get worked through very quickly? Um, I always appeal to people's better natures on things like that, but I think that if it's an AI that's reasonably replicating humans, I think that it would probably do a pretty decent job as its own advocate uh, if it's smart enough to really be seen as a competitor. And that is a, a tricky thing there. Um, you know, you don't really get racism against cats or dogs. Uh, they're not a threat. Um, certain types of bigotry are kind of um, based, at least in part, off of a feeling of competition or threat. And you certainly have that for an AI. But if it's just something that uh, runs your call for you and can chat a bit, I don't think most people would get too upset about that. And beyond that, then, you know, we have to be mindful and appeal to our own better natures. I doubt you have it as an issue for more than a couple of generations, though, because either people will get used to it or they'd ban it, one of the two. Um, Mr. E from Tau Seti, I think I've mentioned before you guys all have very interesting usernames, asks, HP Lovecraft Horror or Good Sci-Fi? Thoughts? Um... Both. Uh, you have to look at it from that era. If you read something like Mountains of Madness, H.P. Lovecraft being an author from the early uh, early 20th century, um, it's a lot like Jules Verne's. People wouldn't necessarily think of it as all that sci-fi these days, but it absolutely was. Um, very broad genre then. It's horror and it's sci-fi. Um, something can be both. A lot of sci-fi is, is horror, and a lot of horror has a sci-fi overtone. You know, anytime you've got uh, aliens from another planet, I think that has a qualified to some degree as sci-fi. Um, very good work, though. Obviously, it's it's got some dated aspects. <laughs> uh, Mr. Boy asks, how, how big can a black hole get? How many galaxies and galactic cores could you reasonably shove together? Probably everything inside of a billion light years if you really wanted to. But I don't think you'd ever want to build a black hole that was more massive than about 10 galaxies worth. And even that... You know, we talk about the Borch planet here and everyone, because uh, we do, we reference it as a good idea to build a Borch planet. And uh, folks will say, oh, that's one of those ones with, you know, more than a galaxy's mass. Say, that's not what the Borch planet is. A Borch planet is anything with a very large black hole, a non-solar mass black hole at its center. Uh, 
the upper end of that being multiple galactic masses because at that point in time where one gravity would be at would be inside the event horizon and you can't quite get to that level uh, which I think we said was half a light year across. Um, you can get pretty close though and that's as big as you go so anything beyond that would seem kind of pointless to do it you want to do multiple ones instead. You also have to keep in mind when you start merging black holes, especially big ones, you're going to get really powerful gamma, uh, gamma wave releases. We'll talk about that more in weaponizing black holes in two months. So it's not something you want to be doing casually. Um, Bob asks, could accumulated rocket exhaust in the solar system ever become a problem? Um, you know, as in, in a Dyson swarm, if you have a lot of rockets, you're going to have a lot of gas kicking around. And it should tend to stick to fairly chemical exhaust speeds so particles atoms moving at you know tens of kilometers a second um are not something that's going to do much damage to the hull of a ship that's designed for a micrometeor impact um you could just have a bit of a general pollution though and you would have to find a way to sweep that up at the atomic scale kind of a dust cloud um I've thought about that, but I've never been satisfied as to whether or not that would be a hindrance or something you could just ignore, but it shouldn't be a big hindrance at the very least. Um, Mr. Zion asks, do you ever think about creating a second channel for your D&D stuff? As you have a clear talent in storytelling, it might just be fun and intriguing to listen to your own stories, perhaps in a sci-fi realm. Um, a lot of the practice I got for making videos in the early days was for making short skits for whatever... Um, uh, D&D game we were playing at the time. Um, <clears throat> I really can't see doing a second channel, to be honest. And I wouldn't mind playing around with fantasy or sci-fi aspects more, but I prefer to do world building. I don't really like to write stories as much. I, you know, what's what the geography of a water, so to speak, the maps, the people, the the noble families, etc., and then you play inside that setup. Um, but uh, RPG is very different than writing a book, I think. You, you know, you have a mixed storyline. You're reacting to people with your time. It's very different than creating a script. Um, who knows, though, one day. I just I don't think I would do that as a second channel. I don't think I'd actually do any second channels. Hybrid S asks, do you think that Mars and Venus will be terraformed before we head to different stars or mine them to build orbital and eosondors? I, I think that we would probably, well, that's hard to say. We'll probably be building on your cylinders quite a ways before we complete terraforming of Mars or Venus. I don't know if we'd actually have a full-sized on your cylinder before we began doing that. That's that's very hard to say. As to other interstellar colonies, though, same thing. You're built on your cylinders by then. You're out to have because you need to have perfected keeping ecology on a rotating habitat like that. If you need to move one to another solar system without going the full-blown uh, mechanical route of growing people in vitro and you know raising everything uh, that needs social continuity with a VR program. <clears throat> Desert Ants asks, "What is one movie or movie series you'd watch or rewatch just before you went blind? Blade Runner or Dune? Uh, those are some of my personal favorites." Um, Don Ramon, and I can watch those over and over again. Don Ramon DeVogo asks, how do you think non-human animals would be treated post-scarcity? Uh, probably better than now. I, I That's just hard to guess. Um, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more in synthetic meat uh, in early July. Seth Adler asks, uh, thank you, Seth. Hi, Isaac, longtime subscriber and Patreon. In your gut, do you think our sieve, not most, not some AI offshoot, will ever make it out of our solar system? I absolutely do. Um, you know, civilizations like all civilization depends on whether what you mean by all civilization. Um, 
even in countries that still exist that were around 200 years ago, it's very different culture than it was then. And one could argue a different civilization. Changes are going to be constantly occurring. I don't think though that uh, the first interstellar ships will be, well, I think the first interstellar ships would be automated, but uh, I don't think the first interstellar colony ships would have people on board who do not regard themselves as human. Um, they might be fairly cyborged up though, that's just hard to say. Um, Michael Zhang asked, do you think the rate of scientific discoveries has slowed down the past few decades? Yes and no. Um, it's kind of an exponential growth curve as we throw more and more effort and, and money and funds and, and talent at science, but at the same time, you need to climb ever higher uh, to get to that next step. Um, you know, you need multi-billion dollar projects to find particles where you used to be able to do something in your garage in the, you know, with 19th century technology. Um, it, I don't believe in accelerating curves for progress or things like uh, Moore's equation or the singularity concept. Not that I think a singularity is impossible, but uh, I just don't see those as good analogies. I think it relies on cherry picking the concept too much. Um, <clears throat> Chris Walker asked, do you think we could engineer a device to overcome inertia? And if so, how far away from me or from how far away are we from achieving this? Probably about time to go to a break. I'm starting to stumble. Um, you know, in the anti-gravity episode a couple weeks back, we discussed this idea of uh, inertial dampening. It'd be awesome if we had it. Uh, if we, it'd be awesome if, if we could find some way to alter the inertial mass of things. But there is, I won't go as far as say there is no lead on it. The Higgs boson, when we learn more about it, might offer a lead. But I don't think that beyond that, we really have any lead on how we do that. Um, FFC, FF. Span X asks, is there a reasonable altitude for railguns to be effective as a launch option from Earth? Um, you can do it at any altitude, even even sea level if you really want to, but I would say you, you really want that gun ending at the stratosphere or even the mesopause if you can get it up there. It's just how high can you go? The higher you can go, the better. And so you build it as tall as you can get the thing to launch at the other end and uh, that's that's the launch height. I would go ahead and go to break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Hello, SFIA fans. This is Ken York, one of the graphics guys who works for Isaac's YouTube channel. Please excuse the audio, as after purchasing the latest graphics card, I was left with a $2 budget for recording technology. Just a few notes on the 3D animation techniques behind some of these graphics. First of all, what is really interesting about the graphics team at SFIA is the diversity of techniques and tools used by each member. Each person comes from a different background and produces animations in their own way. The net result is a decent mix of various looks and feels. Since I come from a software engineering background, I tend to do most animations using what is called procedural modeling and animation. Basically, this means using a scripting language that is usually built into most major 3D graphics software packages. I use, for the most part, a scripting language called MaxScript that is built into the commercial software called 3ds Max. Using procedural modeling, for example, I can quickly create a shell world as seen in the recent Matryoshka Worlds episode. Using only a script and a few variables, I can quickly regenerate from scratch adjustable sized shell worlds with any number of features like core radius, number of shell layers, shell separation distance, shell thickness, surface features, etc. I also extended the same script to generate any number of symmetrical orbital rings starting at the point where the shells left off. The same goes with the lighting in the scene. The scripting can adjust the number of lights, position, intensity, color, shadow detail, etc. 
Procedural animation is used to create controllable and adjustable motion in a scene. The script provides many interfaces to control an object's position, rotation, scale, texture, etc. over time in the animation. One of the many benefits of procedural modeling and animation is that very little work has to be done by hand, thus saving a lot of time and is great for people like me who are not trained as a graphic designer or artist. Technology-wise, a benefit to all designers is the exponential growth of the rendering power of current GPUs found in graphics cards. Even if your software is a little outdated, a new GPU can draw an incredible number of polygons very quickly. Recently, NVIDIA had released a new set of graphics cards that are optimized to do real-time ray tracing, which has been the holy grail for some time now. I'm looking forward to working with those cards to make some more graphics for SFIA. Thanks for your time today, and thanks to Isaac Arthur for making such a cool... Okay, and we're back. Um, that, by the way, was Ken York. He's one of the guys who does the visuals here, as he mentioned. Uh, he actually just caught an AO in one of our scripts. I had I, uh, a order of magnitude up on one of the calculations for next week's video. Um, where we leave off at here. Jeremy asks, if you, had if you had to be stuck at a dinner party for eternity, which three people would you want to spend that interminable perdition? Uh... Ben Franklin, Richard Feynman, and Isaac Asimov. I would say those might be the most interesting to talk to for a long time. Uh, Zolok asks, what are your thoughts on programmable virtual matter? Um, hmm. I'm actually not sure what you mean by that. If you mean something like smart matter, um, that you could uh, that could rearrange itself. We actually have that uh, discussed in... Oh, what episode is that coming up in? I think we do talk about one of the upcoming episodes, though. Uh, Vahan asks, Isaac, what do you think the sports of the future will be? Will the most popular sports continue to be physical like football or boxing or cerebral like chess? I hate chess. <laughs> I used to play it so much as a kid. Got dragged around at tournaments. Uh, like a random element in there. Um, I don't like to play any game more than about 10 times either for board games. Um, what will the future humans appreciate more? Uh, you know, I, I don't like to do a, a discontinuity or kind of a false dichotomy, if you would, of, of physical sports and, and keeping yourself in shape versus mental activities. I think they actually complement each other very well. If everybody's a cyborg, though, uh, you might not see so much sports because it's, you know, who's got the best uh, chassis is not really the, uh, you know, the level of competition we're looking for. I would tend to think that what we probably see a lot of, though, is lower gravity or zero gravity sports uh, in the more distant future, or some of the more extreme things like skydiving off an orbital ring. We will do an episode on future sports at some point. Uh, space sports, no, as opposed to space ports. Uh, Majestic Satire asks, hey, Isaac, I heard someone, some people managed to teleport one pop. I heard that some people managed to teleport one particle with quantum entanglement at faster than light speed. Do you think anything large scale will ever be possible to teleport? I think you could probably teleport very large things, although what's happening, and this confuses people, is you're cloning the state it's in. Um, you, if you teleport something like that, what you're doing is, is just replicating the pattern from one set of particles to another set of particles. And that doesn't let you get around FTL communication barriers at all. Um, Gregory asks, what is your least favorite law of physics? It actually isn't FTL. Um, probably thermodynamics. It's, uh, it's such a downer having that in play that this entropy limitation, that there's no way to bring it back. Um, that would be a nice one to find a way to circumvent. Um, my ask, uh, sorry, 
Jeff Cordes, thank you very much. And uh, we'll catch you up on questions real quick. Also, Dan, Rob, thank you. Uh, those are all super chat donations, by the way, and those are all appreciated. Um, Paul Kang asks, do you believe that oncologies recycling excess body heat to power themselves is a realistic option? No. Um, you could never recycle body heat. Well, technically, you can get a little bit of a power gain off body heat because we're about what, 20 Fahrenheit higher than room temperature, 30 degrees higher than room temperature, or put that 15 Celsius. Um, so there is a small amount of energy you can get by, say, putting a suit on that was a heat engine uh, and was cooling itself to the ambient temperature. But that is minimal, and uh, that would require walking around with a suit on. Um, you could be using all colleges to be powered off waste heat, though, and even in a less obvious fashion, if you got a factory at the bottom of that oncology, you could be using the heat from that to heat the building. And, of course, you could run a heat engine off of that if it was running at high temperatures. But almost every attempt to recycle heat that's been a waste product of us is going to kind of backfire or be very limited on you because you just cannot get around that, that maximum efficiency of a heat engine issue. And you can't do it with uh, photoelectric as well. I, I know people say, well, could you absorb the infrared ones? And there are limitations on things like um, photovoltaics. That's just as harsh and, in fact, worse than what we usually see on a heat engine. So, uh, Fulanato Flyer, and by the way, I'm sorry when I mispronounce everybody's usual names here, asks, can you tell us a bit about your time in the military? Uh, let's see. I was in the military from 2003 through 2010. Um, most of that time was spent, uh, well, a big chunk of that was in Germany. Uh, and of course there was a deployment to Iraq for about 14 months. Uh, and I guess an extra month on there for Kuwait as well. Um, I do not like sandstorms. <laughs> you know, usually in a storm, even in a fog, you always know which direction you are to some degree or another. There is a feeling of there is an outside war just kind of concealed from you. First time I was in a sandstorm in Kuwait, and the entire universe effectively contracted to ten, you know, ten meters across. And uh, pretty soon, all of our equipment on the ground was literally buried, um, and it was just kind of this blank template. Um, as for the military in general, I, I you'd probably have to be more specific about the questions on that. Uh, I was in a thirteen Bravo enlisted as uh, a list rather than going off. So I know people ask about that sometimes out of grad school and um i was a sergeant and um that's probably about the extent of it my first sergeant uh, he finished out as the sergeant major in charge of tradoc that's uh, the training and doctrine command that runs the u.s army's training programs uh he did actually write his memoirs the black flag journals which talks a lot more about what our unit was doing i get mentioned it a couple of times um but uh that's that's probably a much more objective and complete uh, accounting of things than I would recall off the top of my head. Um, Tommy Vass says, love the channel. What do you think will actually be happening around the time when the ISS is being decommissioned in space station wise, be it Leo or elsewhere, i.e. Space, space station wise, be it in Leo or elsewhere. I've not had enough coffee today. Hmm. I would like to think we'll have another space station ready to go, um, but you know that when we had the shuttle program get discontinued, there was always talk about replacing it, uh, and that ended up not happening uh, yet. Anyway, so there could be a period of time when there's no space station, and that's okay as long as there's one on the map. We also don't want to just try to just keep the ISS going in interminably long. Um, 
I do think the next space station is either going to be very close to the ISS, only just a little bit bigger and modernized, or will actually include a small rotating section, probably at like moon gravity or Mars gravity, because we do need to test that out at some point if we want to start actually going to these places. Code uh, J asks, Isaac Arthur, what do you think our current age would be called 100, 300, and 10,000 years from now? And from when on would it be defined? Um, you know, we have the Iron Age, the Copper Age, and, and these are very loose and, to be honest, very inaccurate terms. But anytime you're dealing with something like global history, it's going to be that way because you have people who are in the Iron Age while most of the population uh, isn't even using metals yet, for instance. Um, I think one of the popular ones is called the Atomic Age or the Information Age uh, or the Computer Age. And I think that that might, you know, one of those could stick. Um, I I really don't know, though. You know, the way historians pick these things out, they usually try and look at what the biggest defining a new influence was and um there have been so many changes as we all know I mean, we aren't even just call it something like the technological age because it could be that we would uh kind of bottom out on research in a few centuries you know get to kind of know everything really major and research slows down to a bit of a crawl so it might be the age of discovery uh, or something along those lines um the block asks will we ever go underground to the core in let's say 500 years and is there any incentive for it only reason to go deeper than the, the upper mantle which you might do for resource extraction is essentially to well resource extraction if you want to mine the planet out to get all the materials in there and there are a lot of materials there that might be a reason why you would uh, go to the core but you never got to go down there to restart it or anything like that. You might go down there to stop it, but even then, I imagine you do that with magnets from above. Um, thank you, Milson. Uh, he asks, what are the best prospects for protecting humans from radiation in space or on planets with no natural defense against it? You would want to use multiple approaches on something like that. Um, a magnetic field to deflect ionized particles is a very good approach if you have the power budget to be doing that, which isn't necessarily all that high. Um, you do want to use multiple layers of different types of shielding because sometimes a shielding, what they actually do is break up a less dangerous particle down into a more dangerous particle, um, and in which case you'd have been better off not having the shielding at all. So you need to have multiple layers of shielding against different types of things so that you're not getting irradiated. I suspect we'll get pretty good at it though because I, I think that we are increasingly going to want to decrease the amount of radiation we're exposed to. So a lot of things like filtering out the you know the phosphorus or potassium we use to avoid any radioactive isotopes in our food might be something we actually start doing in a, in a couple more generations. Andrew Paul Friedman, Andrew Paul Friedman, hi Andrew, uh, asked, should we take Lunar Gateway seriously? Um, you know, I'm actually not sure which one you're referring to. I mean, think of the Gateway Space Station. Um, we'd worked with the uh, Gateway Foundation on that one episode for spaceports and orbital infrastructure. Um, as a general project for a rotating habitat, it's a wonderfully good design. Um, it might be a little bit ambitious for a first one, but in terms of engineering, absolutely. In terms of funding to make it happen, it's like anything else. You know, I, I told people not uh, to take SpaceX all that seriously when that first got started up, and in that case, I was dead wrong. Uh, the other 99 times I said you shouldn't take something right, though, I, I, um, I was right. So <laughs> sometimes you just can't get pessimistic about these things. You have to let them play out and see if they can get it going. And so often we have these great ideas that fundamentally are just limited by funding time or something better coming along. Um, 
Attila Zaibo asks, why, why we don't build optical telescopes on the moon? Why is space better? We don't build them on the moon because it's too expensive at this time to do, to do a setup like that. The place you want to put them is on the dark side of the moon, and that means creating a relay system to send the data back to. Um, the dark side being in terms of dark in that we can't see it as opposed to perpetual darkness. Um, the big advantage of a moon-based one, besides that sound insulation, which we could do by just you know heavy shielding, uh, is that you do a very large Zenith telescope there with a liquid metal. Um, I think we talked about that in mega telescopes. So it's just a cost issue at this time. And, you know, we don't have that many space telescopes as is. Um, although not all of them are in orbit of Earth, uh, low orbit especially. <coughs> Powell asks, can gravitational waves travel faster than light? If so, isn't that enabling FTL communication? I don't know where this concept of a startup is a popular one. They're, they're, no, gravitational waves demonstrably move at the speed of light. You can even check things like that uh, by seeing which direction the force being exerted by, say, Jupiter is on Earth. It takes a lot of precision to measure that, of course. But if you look and you say, oh, well, the gravity is pulling us in this direction, but the planet's actually eight minutes further ahead in its orbit or 10 minutes further ahead, so it's just a little bit off. <clears throat> but no, gravitational waves travel at the speed of light. As I say, with the speed of light, um, it's not that that's the speed that light moves at. It's that that's the, the maximum speed anything can go, and light is the first thing we thought to call it that. Um, thank you, Vovacat. Opinion on biologically advanced primitive aliens, territorial animal behavior, evolved interstellar travel, possible stupid aliens invasion story. You know, we should do another Alien Civilizations episode. Um, it's the problem is that I would love to do some more of the more mocking ones like Stupid Aliens, but I had to come up with a new title for those. There's a bit of a standing joke with that between me and the channel's cover artist, Jacob, as we always like to do those tongue-in-cheek. So that's why the uh, thumbnails for those always look like cartoons. Um, we would want to see which ones are, you know, which behaviors are biologically motivated. Um, and which ones are not is a really good idea to look at in the sense that we can expect nothing for certain with them, but where there's a biological kind of convergence towards something, then it's more likely to happen. Same as we might say, you'd expect every civilization to be curious because how would they discover technology otherwise? There might be exceptions, but probably not very many. And that could be a good episode to look at. If anyone can think of a good, appropriately cheesy title for that, then maybe we'll have that episode happen. Uh, Madelik asks, how many generations of stars have the universe witnessed so far and how many are ahead in the future? I guess we'd say three because we have population one, two, and three stars, but that's a very uh, iffy way to look at it. Some stars live you know, millions of years, um, you know, and then they blow up and you could have many, many sequences of those where they were getting material from each other. Others have been around since the beginning, you know, uh, there's very small red dwarfs. Uh, in fact, most red dwarfs, um, you know, we've never had a red dwarf die yet. I think maybe a couple of the biggest orange dwarfs that were early on might have died off by now, but even most yellow stars like Aronos are still the first generation of those. They haven't died off yet. Um, Andrew Lawrence asks, why do you think nobody has used Aerospike rockets yet? Um, mass. I mean, the, the aerospikes are very handy. Um, when you're doing a rocket nozzle, the stuff all blows out the back, technically backwards, but a lot of it's got momentum moving a little bit up or a little bit down, and that's wasted momentum. So you want it coming out as a perfectly thin line, or in the case of an aerospike wedge, a, a, a thin plane. And that gives you your maximum thrust from that material, so you want that. However, there are 
very large, heavy objects that require cooling. So uh, if we can make them lighter, uh, they just have to be built to the point where they're light enough and uh, easy enough to cool that the thrust they're producing is is uh, mitigating the extra mass being added by them. And I think we actually probably will see some AO spikes in things inside the next 20 years. It's just a question of when somebody gets the metallurgy up to it uh, and the cooling. Softectronics asks, would mining helium-3 from the moon be cost effective? If you actually have a neutronic fusion, yes. <laughs> um, Helium-3 on the moon is of no real value to us until we actually have a fusion-based system that runs on it, which again is a neutronic fusion. One problem, the moment that you have that, you no longer require a near source like the moon because you just head over to a place like Saturn or Uranus or, or Neptune to go get your supply. Uh, that's what we were talking about in colonizing Neptune. You might have some local mining of it just because if you already have an infrastructure on the moon, when the demand arrives, you know, Nero is always better. Uh, but I would never see that being a really big economy on the moon just because there's so much more of it in the gas giant areas. And the simple possession of the device that makes you want helium-3 as a fuel also means interplanetary travel becomes relatively easy. Uh, Knife Caviar asks, are you going to collab with Curious Droid again anytime soon? Uh, not off the top of my head. I haven't talked to Paul in some months. I should look him up. Um, our next collab coming, I, I would love to do one though. Paul is a great guy to work with. Um, but uh, actually everybody I've done collabs with has been really awesome to work with and that's not just me saying so. Our next one is going to be coming up is with uh, Jade from Up and Adam, Jade Tan Holmes. We're looking at Boltzmann Brains, the Anthropic Principle and Consciousness and those. I don't have a date for those yet. Those were just kind of writing. It'll probably not be a regular Thursday episode though. Um, so I'm very uh, very schedule oriented about Thursday episodes. I always like to make sure they come out exactly on time. So the bonus episodes are kind of the ones we do for short notice or extra stuff. And I suspect most of our clouds will probably be on, on, um, on bonus episodes on weekends and things like that. Um... Vabinell asks, any thoughts about the geopolitics of space colonization, a way we can make sure one nation doesn't just grab planets for its own? Hmm. There is a, a threat aspect that goes on with any sort of land negotiations. If you have a nice fair system in play, whoever's got the most muscle is probably going to be the one who's going to exploit that as the most. The idea is preventing them from doing it too much. And one upside, as it were, uh, silver lining perhaps, of space travel is everything is really vulnerable to attack. It's very easy to blow up a spaceship. Um, and they themselves are weapons, but they're also very fragile uh, against something like a planet. So I don't think you'd actually have somebody trying to claim stake vast regions all to themselves without other people getting similar amounts. But I suspect that they are, that however ends up being posted out will be um, the least unfair system that could be uh, pragmatically put in place. So <laughs> I'm sure people will object to it and probably on very good grounds in many cases. Um, but I don't think anyone's going to make a, a legitimate claim for the entirety of Mars or the entirety of the moon. If there's ever a government that's just the moon government or the Mars government, it's likely to be something that generations after settlement, they form themselves. I also would not be surprised if uh, an awful lot of uh, these places we always think of as new colonies really were many different nations and many of them territories of nations existing back on Earth that were quite happy to stay with that government. 
Uh, so you could easily have a million governments back on Earth in the future where most of them actually controlled entire interstellar empires elsewhere. Um, Jeremy Scott asks, if we had to abandon Earth, would we want to take two of each creature with us? Wouldn't they become repulsively inbred with a handful of generations? Should we just bring thousands of cats? I definitely favor the thousands of cats options. Um, I'd say I had Prospero scratching at my office door about half the episode today. Um, he wants to come in, but he must stay outside. Because um, he gets full all over me. Inbreeding with animals is not really an issue in of itself. Um, you can freeze their eggs easy enough to just have uh, new genetic, you know, you can either have the shared mother or you could have pre-fertilized ones for implantation. Um, if you are packing a single live creature instead of two, that would probably work just as well. Um, you don't really want them breeding too much on your spaceship in general, so freezing is good. The reason why you're keeping a population of them at all is because you want social continuity with those animals. You know, uh, a human cannot just be born. They have to be taught and raised. And a lot of animals have that apply too. And we looked at that in exporting Earth. And that, that's actually one of our justifications why larger ships are better because it allows you a much bigger ecology. Peter Fraser asks, Seven Eyes, read it yet? Yes, I have. Uh, it's not going to be one of our books of the month though. Um, I do like Neil Stephenson as an author. Uh, but my favorite book by him is Snow Crash. So if we ever did a book of the month by him, it would probably be Snow Crash. Um, it's an interesting book. Most of his work is, but uh, I did think it was a little on the long and expositional side. Uh, Joe Dunn asks, with so much negativity about climate change, war, resources, overpopulation, etc., how do you stay positive about the future? I never really think of myself as positive about the future. Um, my justification for being positive about the future is that the past history of humanity has been pretty much a little bit like the stock market. You have some ups and downs, but pretty much one perpetual climb towards, you know, better life in almost every respect. Um, and I think that we can say at this point in time that a desire for that, a push for that, and a general human will for that is definitely there. So I only really see it as uh, a concern when you get things like uh, core existential issues, like a loss of purpose um, or going to hedonism from a post-scarcity civilization or suicide-packed technology, e.g. Uh, something that blows you up without you thinking about it. But you know, a lot of the negativity that we see on, on the future, I think, I, I hate to phrase it this way, this kind of this Malthusian mindset to me speaks usually about the person saying it a lot more about them than it does about humanity. Uh, if you go through life with a negative attitude, first, I don't think it's more accurate in the least bit. Uh, second, I think it just indica indicates a certain amount of hidden ego. Uh, you think everybody else is stupider than you are, and um, it, that may in some cases be true, but... I don't think that's a, a very productive or accurate way to look at the world. So uh, it's not a wishful thinking optimism. To me, it's a very pragmatic realism approach. Uh, I hope things turn out better uh, than I would tend to hope for, and they might turn out worse than I tend to hope for, but I, I really do feel like the the core of favors uh, an increasingly better future. Um, Divinitus asks, do you think humans are possibly among the first intelligent species in the galaxy as a solution to the Fermi paradox? Yes. Now, that that's my stated opinion as the most likely, or I should say least unlikely um, solution for the Fermi paradox. And I would carry that outside to probably most of our supercluster, to be honest. Uh, I think humanity is the first intelligent species in our region of the universe. Um, 
at least the first technologically intelligent one. You know, uh, and elephants have been around as long as humans and maybe longer. I'm not sure what the evolutionary track is, but they're quite small too. Um, so technologically advanced civilizations to the point where we're at, I think we are the first. I think that is the most non-unlikely solution to the Fermi paradox. None of the answers have ever struck me as really perfectly fitting though. Uh, Lucas asks, uh, what would a civilization look like if it were bioformed to space? That is, if they could live like the Geth in math effect, Mass Effect being directly exposed to the vacuum of space. We have an episode coming up on that, Space Whales and Bioships, in early July, so I will pass on discussion of that uh, for the moment, but um, you could create something. I don't think something could evolve in space um, that could actually live in the void. That's possible, but unlikely. But you could absolutely tailor something too. Of course, then the question is, is it really a life form in the classic sense? Um, and that's where you always start kind of getting into the uh, iffy definitions or bad definitions. Josh Phillips, thank you. Uh, he asks, why is modern pop sci-fi so bad? <laughs> it seems like budget and quality have an inverse relationship. Um, maybe, you know, I, I think of classic Doctor Who, um, which I still love. Uh, Tom Baker era, Peter Davidson era, and, and even the horribly maligned Colin Bacon, Baker sixth Doctor era. Um, you know, this was very good science fiction in my book, but obviously the sci-fi budgets were awful and often the uh, the sets, the props, and the scripts could have used a lot more work. Um, me times they are trying to avoid tropes, I think, or they're trying to make something that's going to appeal to a more mainstream audience. And that is, you know, I think that kind of comes to the territory. We have a lot more science fiction TV shows than we used to. We used to be lucky if we had one, let alone two on air at the same time. And uh, I think that you're going to have bad shows come with that or once trying to make their own mark by being very different. So I wouldn't mind if more of them tried to bring some of the classic shows to life. And I see one of our next questions about George R. R. Martin. So uh, I would say that that is a good example of bringing a fancy or science fiction show uh, series to television as opposed to to a movie. And I think that's a great idea. Uh, we're going to go ahead and go to another break and we'll pick up from there. We're going to go to probably about 20 after five. Hello everyone, my name is Matthew Acker, and I'm here to give you a behind-the-scenes look at how we at SFIA make an episode. But first, let me introduce myself. Born in New York, my family has been military for generations, and I'm no exception. However, I did suffer a head injury, and I lost my sense of self for many years. Interstellar is what set me on the path of rediscovery and gravity. From here I absorbed everything I could from wherever I could, and after devouring Isaac's channel, I messaged him that I was a big fan and a huge believer in what he was doing, and that I wanted to help out in any way I could. I have been a member of the production group now for about 18 months, and I am also an admin for the SFIA Discord and website. I work hard to educate others to believe in themselves and dream big as others have done for me. Now, each episode begins with Isaac posting to the production group a brainstorming session day, time, and the two topics that we're going to cover. This gives everybody plenty of opportunity to do research so we can hit the ground running. Now each session lasts roughly two hours, about one hour for each topic. During these sessions, we often come up with amazing concepts, such as the Stellar Engine. We even come up 
with new content that Isaac wishes to turn into an episode in the future. After the session, Isaac will go and write up a draft, and when he's done, he'll post it to the production group, where we can go to it and add, modify, or make suggestions, where Isaac can come along and approve or change, or if he's unhappy, he'll scrap it and he'll start again. Next, Isaac will record the audio segment and post it up on the production group for us to screen it for any errors or issues. And then we will move on to the graphic segment, again to be screened. Isaac likes to stay roughly two months ahead of schedule for the release date of every episode. Every episode takes roughly 60 minutes of creation time per one minute of video time, though we are increasing as we get more efficient at this process. And there you have an episode. Now, from everybody here at SFIA, I wish to thank you for your time, your support, and your ideas, without which we would not be where we are. So thank you very much, and please enjoy the rest of the live stream. And we're back. Uh, again, we'll go for probably about five or six more questions and call it for the day. Uh, question from Smitty. Have you read any sci-fi by George R. R. Malton? And thank you, Smitty. Um, Nightfly, as I've read way back in the day, and some of his other ones too, the names escape me at the moment. It is interesting is that uh, George R. R. Martin, before Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire, was uh, probably best known for Beauty and the Beast, which was kind of a sci-fi show too. But uh, he's a very good author, um, and he does do a lot more science fiction than most people, I think, tend to realize. Um, MG Wagon asks, and thank you, MG Wagon, what do you think of the chance Starship gets to Mars? Uh, we also have a parallel question that from Aiden right below that. Do you think we should colonize Titan or Mars first? Um, and I would say for that one, yes, we should do Mars first. And I do think that uh, there are so many projects for how to actually get to Mars. And of course, you have some that are kind of on the silly side or premature or more of a wish and a prayer. I tend to think uh, updated for modern technology, of course, the, the pathway laid out by Rob Zubin in uh, the case of Mars back in the mid-90s is still one of the best current approaches. But I, I, I do keep my fingers crossed for like the SpaceX approach of just kind of throwing mass quads of material at it and seeing if it sticks. <laughs> so always my preferred way. Um, Nasmuth asks, uh, and thank you, Nazmuth. In the fall future, do you think you can quickly learn all the science, pack up, find a quiet nook, and play God in some quiet corner? Hmm. I'm going to kind of interpret that as being, can you basically get a download where you know all the science your civilization do and then fly out to some place that nobody was at and set up shop? I think that to a degree you could, but large group efforts are always going to have an advantage of getting to these places first. Um... And there might be a push, because you're never going to be able to hide your trajectory when you leave a solar system, not in any significant way. So they are going to monitor where you go. They might be able to see when you actually get there, but they'll be following themselves with other ships or probes. So um, you could have a phase where very small groups, you know, you know, just individual groups of maybe 20 or even individual people might go off and colonize, you know, places on the other side of the galaxy. Um, and we might run into those guys that they're already set up as the main colonization wave arrives, and that could be kind of interesting. But I think you could, it's possible. I just think that would probably tend to be something we'd avoid. Uh, they're kind of a bit of a whole image of one person uh, going off and setting up shop as God on some other planet. Um, and 
generally, I think the motivation of most people who would want to do that would be suspect that they couldn't find other people who wanted to colonize with the same ideology or goals in mind. So possible, but hopefully not too probable. Um, Seth Adler, thank you. He asks, if you had to pick a path to commercial fusion, what tech would you pick? Oh, I've uh, got magnetic confinement, ITOR, POST, NIF, or mag target fusion, general fusion. And of course, I assume Tokamak's in there too. I have too many friends who are actually in this area of research. Uh, in fact, I got to bump into one of my old uh, friends from undergrad, uh, John Morrison. Um, he's working on uh, not fusion for power, but fusion for a different purpose, uh, creating neutron beams. Uh, and uh, we had a chance to catch up on that. So there are so many different ways you could do that. And I don't like to uh, express a preference on that matter because I feel like we should be funny them all right now. The Takamak still seems to be like the best system, but it's got so many f- problems that one might argue that it's, uh, even if it's got a good performance in many respects, that we really should be looking at those other areas. And my general attitude on pretty much all energy policy is research and prototype everything. You know, just keep throwing stuff at it until we find some some good ones and hopefully one of them sticks and so is a good replacement for us uh be it solar wind fusion whichever um i don't think wind could really ever be competitive except as a supplemental though and that's the thing to remember too is you do want multiple power source generation methods some will work better in certain situations plus it helps avoid some of the bottlenecking or uh, you know monopolistic tendencies you could have in play with the power supply if you uh, have multiple ways to get power you know some are not quite as good majestic satire asks when do you actually think a moon base will be set up depends on what you mean by a moon base i you know everyone's been saying we'll go back to the moon next decade or something like that for a while um but I do think we are getting closer and closer to doing that. We have the technology to do it. We've had the technology since the late 60s, of course, uh, and though some conspiracists would say otherwise. Uh, I would disagree with them very much. Um, we've had the ability to do a moon base there at that time, too. You know, Within the 70s, we could have set up a moon base. The question is, why? And there are all motivations to do it, but it's not something we should jump at prematurely. You know, uh, As I'd like to point out, Antarctica had 50 years pass by from the first time someone went to the polls we set up our first real base there and it wasn't a very good one um rushing things is not necessarily a good idea but i do think we can expect a moon base sometime in the next generation um though that's always hard to say um are we out of questions not seeing any other ones from the, the guys there we can't possibly have run out of questions uh for anyone who's wondering we have a side window the mods send me questions from that they pull from the chat windows so um not seeing new ones popping up there i guess we will go ahead and stop for today let's go over the schedule quick and maybe they'll get a question before i uh sign off uh we have had the schedule coming up on the side as we were discussing today but uh coming up this upcoming week is going to be the black hole ships episode and then next week, uh, May 9th, is our Sky Platforms episode. We're going to look at some of the options for launching from high up in the atmosphere. Um, a very popular notion that uh, I have some problems with it that we'll look at there and see if there's any ways around it, like the Strato Fortress from, uh, uh, from DS. Then we are going to go ahead and look at more Black Horse material with a fleet of stars, which will be mostly about moving stars, either with Shikata thrusters or with uh, very large black holes. And then we're going to come back to look at space planes, uh, kind of following up from sky platforms. And uh, just kind of this notion that you could fly up to space from your own garage, which will follow up with beaming power in early, sorry, late June. 
And then uh, we'll be getting back to the Outward Bound series, look at colonizing Pluto. And uh, so a lot of episodes come up in the near future. If you have extra questions, please feel free to leave them in the comments. Uh, I'll get to those in a couple of hours. They uh, don't really put them up until afterwards, and I cannot reply to the chat. So I do read the chat afterwards uh, real time, but I can't actually see it for about an hour after the live stream stops. So, uh, And I can't reply to it there either. So we will see everybody in about uh, a month for our next live stream and uh, we will see you guys all on Thursday. Thanks for joining us.